hello there. I didn't even see you standing there. Hi. How are you? Good to hear. Because you are listening to the Inspired Minds Podcast. My name is Jeff Watson. I am indeed and ever shall be your gracious and your grateful host. I have had a fantastic weekend that I have just returned from, from which I've just returned, I think is the appropriate phrase, because uh, I had a dinner with some previous guests. It was the first Inspired Minds dinner that I will hopefully be doing more of. I invited some previous guests, and we had a lovely dinner, lovely steak dinner at this place called Taylor's down in lovely Los Angeles, California. And it was it was just fan. It was wonderful to meet a bunch of different people. Um, say hi to them face to face. Obviously, haven't done that yet. And they got to meet each other, and it was just a hoot. You know, I don't know where this thing's heading. This podcast. Uh, my friend Michael Lee Simpson and I started this little thing off about eight months ago or so. Now I think at this point, up to about sixty interviews, maybe. I don't know where this is heading, but all I know is I got a chance to meet some incredible people through these interviews. So. Uh, I look forward to doing more. The next guest is a guy named Drew Fortune, and I, boy, I'm a big movie dork. I certainly am, as many of you faithful listeners, all four of you have noticed, but I'm a bigger music dork, and I like doing both. I like switching it up a lot, and Drew is definitely, he falls in both buckets, actually. Um, He's a journalist. He's written for Rolling Stone and Vulture and Vanity Fair and Esquire and Spin and Cosmo. The guy wrote for Cosmo. How cool is that? Um, But he's also got this great movie called Beast Mode, which is available everywhere. And uh, it's a movie he and a friend wrote. And it's just a old school Roger Corman trauma Avenger, uh, toxic Avenger kind of a thing. Super gore, super fun, a meta horror movie. We talked so much about old school horror. Um, We specifically got into uh, Roger Corman because, you know, he's the king of that kind of stuff. Talked a lot about Stephen King, a lot about Jaws. Um, this was far and away one of the dorkiest conversations I've had on this podcast so far. And that is saying a lot, ladies and gentlemen, because uh episode or two ago, I ended up singing Almost Paradise from the Footloose soundtrack. So this topped that one, actually. We got into, my God, Ween, the, the band Ween that probably nobody knows anyway, for a very like, an inordinate amount of time on this particular show. Um, the Amazing Replacements, this great band called Super Chunk, The Flaming Lips, talked about... We got into uh, Tony Clifton, who I don't even know if anybody's going to know who the hell he is, but he was Andy Kaufman's kind of alter ego thing that is still continuing on. And if you know the gag, it's amazing. And if you don't, it's still a fun interview, I hope. But my favorite part of this interview, far and away, he has this book called No Encore. uh, Musicians reveal their weirdest, wildest, most embarrassing gigs. Go get this thing on Amazon or wherever you buy books these days. I don't even know how that works, but it's fantastic because it talks about the worst gigs that they've done. And I will say this as a musician myself, touring musician, I should say as well, back in the nineties, essentially being in a band is like being a pirate. It, it you know, like the, the van is the ship and you're going town to town and you're drinking and you're pillaging and you're moving on to the next town. <laughs> it's this feeling of, uh, of, of unbridled chaos that especially when you're young is a lot of fun, but I completely related to this because specifically my, and I shared this with, uh, with Drew, my worst touring experience was when I had a gun held in my head in Texas of all places, when, uh, the manager decided the, uh, the house manager for the, for the bar decided not to pay me what he originally said. And when I quibbled, he pulled the gun and that was kind of the end of that. 
That's life on the road, folks. Builds character, I guess. That's what they've said. Anyway, I hope that you enjoyed this as much as I did making it, because uh, this guy's my new BFF. I say that a lot on this show, actually, and if any of the former guests are listening, um, you are no longer a BFF. <laughs> now Drew is. Drew, if you are listening to this, this will not last. I just wanted to be very clear about that. The next episode will be another new best friend. So, At any rate, um, that's all I got, folks. Go, uh, you know what? Go, go look up Tony Clifton. <laughs> Just go Google Tony Clifton. You'll have fun. Trust me. Take care. Well, hello, dazzled throng, as I like to say, of the Inspired Mind audience. Please give a warm welcome to Mr. Drew Fortune. Drew Fortune, say hello to the Inspired Minds audience. Hello, people of Earth. Actually, that's a catchphrase of uh, how did this get made? I'll, I'll think of one later. Please do. I'll uh, just, hey, Jeff, thanks for having me. Really excited to get you on, obviously. Uh, Drew and I uh, have been talking, ladies and gentlemen, for a bit before this interview, and I can already tell that we're kindred spirits. A lot of touch points I want to get to. But the first question, as you may or may not know, my friend, that I always ask everybody is that when you were young, what was the first thing that inspired you when you were a child? Was it a song or a book or an inflection point or whatever that was? Go. Um, I don't even really need to think about that. Uh, Jaws. Watching the movie Jaws on um, a VHS that we taped off of ABC, I remember. That's the first time I remember um, losing myself into entertainment. Um, It wasn't an album. It wasn't a TV show. I mean, Sesame Street, sure, I remember watching that. But, I, I, you know, my parents would tell me I would just sit in front of our TV and just watch Jaws silently. By myself, cross-legged. I'm an only <laughs> child. Um, so, yeah. Oh, it was Jaws. And even back then, I, I remember thinking, um, there's something more to this. This is artistry. Huh. Uh, even at that age, it just, I, I you know, <clears throat> the feeling of being um, going down the rabbit hole, so to speak, when you're reading a book, when you're just totally lost in that world. That's right. the first time I remember that. And um, it led to... Uh, well, kind of off topic, my lifelong love of fishing. Um, yeah, but I, yeah, I remember Jaws was the seminal movie. It wasn't Star Wars. What, uh, I was big in Indiana Jones, but that even took a backseat. Brody um, was my hero, uh, Roy Scheider. Yeah. Uh, I just, I even had a jacket that we called my Brody jacket when I was five. Um, <laughs> and it's like just a tan jacket he's wearing around town yeah. uh, when he's going to get the paintbrushes. I mean, yeah. that's how into it I was at such an early age. Um, so yeah, that was that was really my starting point. And I remember, and Jaws really started everything. Uh, being an only child, um, you know, when I had friends, obviously, um, you know, I wasn't like I was a small kid, so I wasn't an athlete or anything. Uh, sure. Growing up in Omaha, Nebraska. You know, art wasn't, I'm not trying to get too sidetracked, but art wasn't necessarily appreciated or celebrated so much. Um, You know, I was expected to just love Cornhusker football and uh, play sports, you know, Um, but that never, just never did it for me. Um, So when I escaped into play by myself, it was always movies. You know, I would play Jaws uh, in my backyard. Mm -hmm. Somehow I would create the fantasy that I was on the Orca you know, in the middle of the ocean, battling Jaws in an Omaha, Nebraska field, you know? I mean, talk about the power of movies. 
for just to do something like that to me. You know, even at that age, I knew I was a junkie for movies. Um, no. And then it was Die Hard. Um, <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. That was, that's when R-rated movies came in. And I'm like, oh, God, here we go. Give me more. But what I want to get to uh, kind of losing myself in movies, um, first it was, yeah, it was Jaws, Die Hard. I actually broke my um, my arm playing Cliffhanger in my in my treehouse, wow. the Sylvester Stallone movie. Um, so yeah, I took it pretty far <laughs> in my Definitely. in my fantasies. But what I wanted to get to was uh, I used to make movies all the time in my basement, and they were always horror movies, like very horrific, violent things. And my dad would always, and I would always get my cousin Danny to play, you know, kind of be my. Uh, my star and there you know nothing was scripted it was a loose idea um tales from the crypt it was mostly inspired by tales from the crypt to the huh? hbo series so we did one i remember called heartbait we thought that was clever because it was a playoff of heartbeat and <laughs> a guy rips out a dude's heart on a boat and uses it for bait i mean that's as far as we got <laughs> basically that was it. um yeah but uh yeah that's that's where all that started. And again, I was reading really at an early age, Stephen King heavily. Um, I remember teachers, you know, when we have reading time in fifth grade or maybe even sixth grade, you know, I think I got in trouble. They would say, you know, Drew's reading misery. Like, did you give this book to him? Right. And my parents would be like, uh, yes. Um, not like I was acting out or anything, but, um, that's kind of heavy material when everyone else is reading goosebumps and I'm reading about, you know, a guy getting his leg amputated and <laughs> cauterized right. with a blowtorch, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah. Salem's Lot, not the kind of thing that kids really usually read that time. <laughs> right. Yeah. I did the Tommyknockers. I remember that was like 747 pages. Wow. And I felt yeah. like such a badass when I finished it. That's pretty much, you know, the um, the early years of Drew Fortune <laughs> right there. Right. And, you know, every time I ask this question, I love this question so much. Because it does provide a through line most of the time, especially for creatives, right? Like, mm-hmm. I know my inflection point. I was six, by the way. I knew exactly where I was. It was a particular song, Boston, of all weird things. And that was it. Boom, I'm in. And it carried me through this time, this through line of my life, which has been completely devoted to music and now perhaps helping people and perhaps both And at, at any rate. Right. That through line is so important. So then I guess, can you maybe just tell me just kind of briefly, then I would guess how that influenced where you are now. Sure. Um, what I really should have done looking back, um, you know, I'm 40. Uh, one of my great regrets is not going to film school and pursuing that in earnest. You know, it's, um, again, part of that Midwest thing, like in high school, I regret that there was a guy who was, who was making, he was a year older, but he was making these really cool, you know, obviously independent movies basically around our, our, um, our town. And I remember he gave me a VHS sort of supercut of his stuff. Um, but you know, it was part of that thing where I wasn't confident enough in high Mm -hmm. school to just be like, let me work with you, dude. Like, I like what you're doing and it's way more interesting to me than, you know, uh, lacrosse or, whatever was going on in Barrington, Illinois in the late nineties. Um, so yeah, but, uh, I went to, uh, DePaul university. I ended up at DePaul and that's where I, um, that's where I graduated. And, uh, 
you know, uh, there were a lot of kids at Columbia. A lot of my friends were making short films, um, actually doing the, the film program thing. But I didn't do that. Uh, you know, I didn't really do much in college uh, that I, again, I wish I had done a million different things. I could have been writing for the school paper. I never did that. So writing for me really came through an internship I did with uh, Rob Elder, who was a Chicago Sun-Times uh, staffer. And mm-hmm. uh, he wrote about movies. He was a critic. So I was, I helped him. Uh, I did an internship with him, worked on a few books of his. And that's what got me into writing. Um, I had never done anything besides short story stuff that the only thing I did well in school with, or the only natural talent I feel like I really had was writing. And that goes back to when I was a kid on road trips, I would write little short stories in the car. And they're all based, loosely based off movies. I'm sorry. I just said, that's incredible. Go ahead. I love that story already. Yeah. But the thing is, and it was so lame that I did this, I would just rip off movies and rewrite them, essentially. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like, I remember um, I wrote a, a, a thing called Dead End when I was 11, and it was just the movie Judgment Night with Emilio <laughs> Estevez. It was Estevez, right, yeah. And, like, I was proud of it because my parents had never seen that movie. Like, oh, look how creative you are. Fuck no, I just ripped off Judgment Night for some reason. Anyway, I guess how my writing thing started um, – you know, I graduated. I always wanted to be a screenwriter, but I never knew. I never took steps to really pursue that. Um, Quentin Tarantino, you know, I was 12 when Pulp Fiction came out. Mm-hmm. Uh, here's a little side note on my obsession with movies. So Pulp Fiction came out. I, I still remember. I think it was like October of 94. And I wasn't allowed to see it. It was like a hard no. And my dad would take me to numerous R-rated films he never liked horror but we did a lot of like Jean-Claude Van Damme because I was really into that and yeah we could agree on action most of the time but I remember he saw Pulp Fiction before me by himself and he came home and I still remember he said no it's not for you it's an it's an adult movie Mm. and that just intrigued me more I'm like what does this mystery box of adult have to offer a young you know budding screenwriter or wannabe screenwriter so anyway they uh they left for a weekend and I had a babysitter. And I remember I told them I was going to my friend, Marty Peters and I rode my bike eight miles to Indian Hills movie, movie theater <laughs> paid for, I don't know, the Brady Bunch movie or something else that was out around that time. Right. And, and then snuck in and got Pulp Fiction. Uh, yeah. And that was, Oh man, that, that was just so cool. And anything that was um, taboo or, and I was told I couldn't do it. My sure. God, I wanted to see it so much more. Uh, I remember, here's another little scam I pulled. Same year, 94, um, Natural Born Killers was out. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, I, I was aware of the controversy. And so I pulled the switcheroo in Blockbuster where I remember they, uh, the v- old VHS cases used to have the movies actually in them. Yeah. Uh, I exchanged that with a different movie. So I rented Natural Born Killers in the Mighty Ducks VHS case. <laughs> and... Yeah, I, I got busted big time for that because I left it in the VCR. My dad goes, oh, so how was Mighty Ducks? And then he like he set it up like uh, an elaborate sting operation, you know. So I'm like, oh, it was good. I loved it. Another Emilio Estevez movie. I guess I'm really into him. Right. <laughs> and then he pulls out the VHS in front of my face and like, oh, shit. That's there it. we go. <laughs> we're done. <laughs> Slap on the kid handcuffs and we're off. So here's the thing. There's, there's like four subjects that I want to hit with you. And they're so yeah. Okay. So we're going to start this round. This is a lightning round, right? I'm going to throw out three different bands 
You are going to do a minute on it. I'll do a minute on it. And then we're going to move on to the second and third. Dale? Sure. Got got you. Replacements. Go. Paul Westerberg is my hero. He can do no wrong. I got into them late in life. And I actually started through um, Paul Westerberg's solo, which I feel is completely underrated. But anyway, you know, it's Midwest ennui and drunken dreamers and beautiful losers. And I fell right into that in my early 20s. Um, I actually got the last interview with Paul Westerberg for Spin Magazine. I drove out to Minnesota and met him at his house and spent an afternoon at Paul's house, at Paul's house with just the two of us. Um, and it's still my favorite piece of writing and one of the most amazing days of my life. I cannot be surprised by any of that. I'm a giant replacements fan <laughs> myself as well. And I actually knew the guy for yeah. about this until I was thinking about it. I used to know uh, Peter Jesperson, who was their A&R guy and best friend and manager and the whole sure. deal. Um, yeah. I actually met, I forgot about this. <laughs> I met Tommy a couple of times because he was living with a friend of mine before he made, he was a telemarketer for a while. I was like, really? Like, oh my God. But then he made all that money with guns. Tommy was? Sorry. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, oh, so when he was doing like fashion pop stuff, like he was yep. doing telemarketing? Yep. To pay the bills? Yep. Which, huh, can you imagine that accent coming out of the coming out of the phone or telemarketing? Gig? Oh, my God. Hearing Tommy call you. <laughs> hey, yeah. how you doing? Like, anyway. Right. So, the replacements have been a massive influence of me, too. I, mean, I heard Kiss Me on the Bus, and I was like, What? And I love their whole shambolic thing and playing on SNL and completely wasted. By the way, do you know who got them drunk that night? Yeah, Harry Dean Stanton. You certainly do because you're a fan. Okay, next. Super Chunk, go. Uh, Super Chunk is my happy music. Again, it was kind of a late in life thing for me. I discovered them around when I was 19 through my cousin Will Brownlee. And, oh, you know how I, I got into them was uh, Shallow End on the Jerky Boys soundtrack. <laughs> sure. Shit, garbage, awful movie, great soundtrack. Uh, no so, yeah, it was Shallow End, like a B-side of theirs, and I just loved it. It was so – it wasn't punk, but it was close enough. Not that I'm a big punk guy, but anyway, I just I just fell in love with everything. I, I have such a sweet spot for um, power pop 90s. Um, oh. I think that they kind of fall in that vein. But yeah, you know, I, I, I came to love Mac's voice and Mac, Mac's songwriting. And uh, yeah, I, I still listen to them daily. Uh, that's the best way to put it after all okay. these years, you know. My quick turnaround here. Um, I'm in love with Laura Balance <laughs> for a very long time. Yeah, yeah there, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I'm Gen X. Like, I'm so Gen X, like right in that sweet spot. Uh, pavement, back. Mm-hmm. And- uh, but anyway, so like Slack Motherfucker was kind of like the anthem for a lot of us. Uh, sure. Of course. Yeah, great song. And then the other thing I was going to say was about Super Chunk. Uh, I forgot. Great band. Finally, Ween. Oh, can I go back to Super Chunk real quick? By all means. I think, um, yeah, uh, I think Come Pick Me Up is their greatest record. And a lot of people differ with me on that. They like the early stuff. I'm like, I don't know, man. Come pick me up is just the fruition of all their strengths coming together, I feel. Hey, look, any conversation about Mac McLaughlin, <laughs> I'm good with. Um, <laughs> so, McGon. It took me forever to learn how to pronounce it. How is it? Mac McGon. Mac McGon. Interesting. You know, this yep. could be the very first and last time on a podcast that anyone's had this conversation specifically before. Just 
<laughs> sure. I want to know how to pronounce Mac's name. <laughs> um, At any rate, so are, are we on Ween? This has all been building towards Ween, basically, right? right? Obviously. <laughs> Obviously. Okay. I might go long on this. Ween encapsulated everything I had ever loved about music. I loved genre hopping, um, like back in Flaming Lips and a lot of that early 90s alt stuff that was really experimental but still accessible. Um, Chocolate and Cheese basically was all of that combined. And once uh, you go down that rabbit hole, it's kind of like The Replacements or Paul Westerberg. The fans are so hardcore and it's it's difficult to explain what it is why this band almost becomes like a religion. And I could walk down the street and see someone with a, a Ween Boogness shirt and we will immediately almost be friends. Like I would feel comfortable enough to invite that person to like a house party or something. Um, <laughs> and boy, my love goes so deep. I got a Boognish tattoo uh, in my early twenties and once I, I formed a really good friendship with uh, Mickey, Dean Ween. As I mentioned, I'm a big fisherman my whole life. And Dean became a, a charter captain um, off the Jersey Shore, a licensed captain. And uh, I pitched a story uh, on just going fishing with him and kind of catching up. That was, you know, after Ween had broken up. So it was in that um, interim, essentially. So, yeah, he was just doing a lot of fishing. And we went out and caught some big striped bass. And... Uh, and then um, that's kind of how our friendship started. And um, my dad and I went fishing with him in Key West. Uh, he took his boat down to Key West one um, one year. And we brought a 200-pound hammerhead shark to the boat. But, yeah, and then we cut him loose. But that was, that was the big catch of the day. But anyway, uh, all that goes to say, um, I've never done this officially, but I think I've interviewed Dean Ween the most of any journalist ever. I think we're at, a, we're at, we're at around – eight or nine or 10 interviews at this point. So yeah, we, we kind of got it down <laughs> where I think he really ended up trusting me more than anyone. So anyway, that's, that's my ween thing. Yeah. You know, and I, actually there's just, I was thinking about this when you said that about the trust thing. Um, that's so in my world, my new world, at least as a therapist, I found something out. It was really mm-hmm. interesting when I first started this gig, which wasn't that long ago. And that is the therapeutic Alliance which is basically, do you like your therapist enough to trust them with your darkest secrets, right? Can you build that trust? Mm-hmm. That trust is actually seven times higher power for the client than any modality, any intervention, anything I can say, basically, right? Really? It's true. Yeah, absolutely. Because think about it. I can sit there and say, well, why don't you do a gratitude list or why don't you? And I do all these things, you know, little tiny little things, right? But if you don't, this person doesn't like me, then they're not going to trust me. What's the point of having a therapist, <laughs> right? Sure. So it's that what I'm talking yeah. about. It's have that you, way of locking in with somebody. It's that way of understanding. You can do interviews with that guy forever and track his life. Yeah. Has there been anyone you haven't been able to break, essentially, or crack? Oh, break. Are, those are bad terms, but you know what I mean. Someone who had a, a shield up and you weren't able to break through it? Um, it's not as it's it's not as simple as that, I mean, perhaps um, – you know, there are people that you connect with more. You and I is a fantastic example. I know you and I'll be friends for a very long time. Others, you know. Yeah, I agree. It's like dating to a certain degree, right? Somebody comes into my office. It's a first date thing, too, because it is kind of fun. I don't know who's coming into the room on the first date, essentially, right? Right. So there's that feeling of like, oh, what's going to happen next? 
But if you connect with that person, that's how it works, right? And then you can maybe not break through or do anything, but you can just shine a different perspective on what, on, on what they're going through that they may not necessarily see. And then you do it, right? I give them, sorry, I don't give them their wings. I show them the wings that are already on their back before they even walk into my office, right? Mm. Mm-hmm. So uh, all I'm simply saying is this went a little far, but this whole Dean Ween thing makes perfect sense because you guys obviously had built an enormous amount of trust. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, I pitched a Ween book. I haven't. Mickey wants to write it himself, but uh, I would love. I would still love to do that. At some point. I cannot blame you. But again, I could do. Um, I could do seriously, and I know that you could too. Actually, you do about ten episodes just on this alone. But we're going to move on, and because I want to move on, I really want to go into beast mode. I would like to speak about beast mode first of all, and then you can fill in the blanks. I'm sure there will be a lot. I'm a giant horror guy, so I'm a gore guy, right? When I was nice. a kid, it was Fangoria. Yeah. That was it. And mm-hmm. to this day, I still will go on YouTube because I interviewed the guy from Final Destination a little while ago, the writer. So I did all this gore looking mm-hmm. up and my like, God, and it was energized and I felt like a kid again. So I love the meta. <laughs> First of all, the fact that, and I wrote this down actually too, because it's such a great line from Ray Wise, ladies and gentlemen, from Twin Peaks and many other films. He says, this line is so good. I got to find it. Hang on. Um, oh no, I have it here somewhere in my notes. Uh, Pain is a yeah, monster. I got it. I got it. Celebrity okay. is a mask. You can't take it off. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Great work. I remember when we wrote that. Great work. <laughs> so tell me about the movie. It's a yeah. meta horror movie, ladies and gentlemen. It's so fucking good. Please go on. Okay. Uh, Beast Mode, our. Well, my weird little mutant baby that uh, my friend Spain Willingham and I uh, came up with. He was an old friend from Chicago. He was one of those guys who uh, was at Columbia um, doing the film school stuff when I was in Chicago as well. So, yeah, we bonded over uh, a lot of schlocky 80s horror trauma films. But, yeah, you know, the gorier, the better. We were we were pretty hardcore gore hounds. I, I took that a bit further than Spain. But... Uh, yeah, you know, horror comedies, uh, Frank Henenlotter, Basket Case, um, a lot of that really obscure, um, mostly 80s stuff um, is kind of what what we wanted to tap into with Beast Mode. So I was in L.A. He ended up moving there from San Francisco. And I remember one day I was at his house and we were kicking around some ideas about a project and we didn't have ideas. But he said, OK, uh, I just wrote this page about. Um, a Hollywood agent who accidentally runs over his only client and that's it. Um, <laughs> so that's, that, that, yeah, that's how it, uh, that's how it started. And then it um, just expanded into this weird thing where there's, a, <laughs> I mean, the plot sounds so silly, but there's um, in Central America, we never say where there's a very, there's a healing flower that if you're if you're pure of heart um, or a good person, it will heal whatever physically ails you. If you're a bad guy, it'll turn you into a beast or a monster. So that that flower makes its way to Hollywood, and that's where our story really kicks off. But this whole journey, you know, again, all I wanted to ever really wanted to do was write a movie in some form, somehow. So you know, there was a lot of perseverance because. Uh, getting a movie made sucks, even, uh, yeah. you know, um, a low-budget horror thing. But we kind of shot for the stars. We um, 
our co-director, we brought in a co-director, uh, Spain co-directed it with this uh, guy, Chris Freeman, um, who brought in Ray Wise and mm-hmm. uh, C. Thomas Howell, who plays mm-hmm. our, our lead, James Duvall from Greg Araki movies like uh, The Dune Generation. He's also an Independence Day in the movie Go. Um, and I loved, yeah, I always loved these guys. So the really trippy part of it was when we sat down to do a table read and you hear these guys reading the dialogue we wrote stoned out of our gourds at like <laughs> at midnight, you know? <laughs> yeah. And then they're, you know, they're taking it seriously. It was so cool. But the process was very long and arduous. You know, we wrote it, numerous rewrites, blah, blah, blah. Uh, I think we shot about 65% of the movie in 20, in 2016 and then funding dropped out. And we, it was just sort of this thing where we had, more than half the movie shot, but it wasn't finished. Um, right. So that was, I got to credit Spain um, for really hustling and raising the money to finish it. Uh, you know, I think we came in around like, well, I don't want to say budget because I don't know exactly. Um, but I think it's fun, you know, and it was, I mean, it was my first time writing something. Uh, I actually just finished another screenplay, but uh yeah, you know, there were things that we had to um that we couldn't do. I mean, it was we originally wrote it as the goriest thing we could come up with. And then we get to set and it's like, oh shit, practical effects are very expensive and time consuming. So we had to cut back on that stuff and then it became more of a comedy. But in the end, you know, it got reviewed pretty well, like not by friends. <laughs> you know, just like actual reviews being like yeah, you know, it's a B minus. They gave it a shot. I'm like, fuck yeah, right? That's yeah. that's all we could really ask for. Sure. <laughs> yeah. So it was, I mean, it was a blast. I still think it's a hoot to watch. And oh, it's just um, it, it's fantastic. And again, it's like it just it's I'm I'm your demo. Let me just put it that way. Because I was watching this, I'm like, oh my god, this is like Roger Corman kind of stuff. I can't believe you watched it. Oh my god, it <laughs> is so. Good and like it's a really dumb meta movie, which is not that many you hear of that often, right? Because it's mm, yeah, sure. no, no offense, totally. I say dumb, but I know I know exactly what I'm saying. And it, yeah. it's just so much fun and it's magical and it's gory. So, ladies and gentlemen of the uh, inspired mind audience, Beast Mode VOD, find it anywhere you can, uh, your closest uh, streaming outlet, and get on it because I've got to move on to some more topics. How about that, buddy? Yeah. Hey, I appreciate that plug. I interviewed Roger Corman a couple years ago. Really? God, he was 90, I think, when we spoke. Yeah. What was he like? Very sweet guy. Very sharp as a, (laughs) sharp as a tack, I was going to say, but that's a, (laughs) who says that anymore? But yeah, that's how he was. He was just totally on it. And yeah, very cool guy. What was his place like? Oh, that was, uh, it was a phoner. Uh. I just imagine yeah, like so. big boobs are everywhere and <laughs> the old things. <laughs> um, right. Okay, yeah, so yeah. moving on. Uh, so I got to get to the – ladies and gentlemen, speaking of plugs, this guy has his book called No Encore. Musicians reveal their weirdest, wildest, and most embarrassing gigs. And as a road warrior myself, which I'll get into in a second, Drew, ladies and gentlemen, this is perfect. It is an incredible distillation. It's an incredible snapshot of what it's like to be on tour. And I love how many people that you got through on this thing 
ladies and gentlemen, this guy has a massive range of people talking about touring stories. And I want to bring up one example from D. Snyder's personal favorite of mine. And the quote is, <laughs> I, got, I, 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 um, I go to the exit of the venue, and there was 25 people marching toward us. It's about 3 a.m., and they weren't there to be nice. They were carrying bats, boards, chains, hammers, and they were coming for us. That's one of the quotes. So tell me yeah, how you got this yeah. idea in the first place. Yeah, I mean, growing up, Behind the Music came out in my teen years, you know, VH1's Behind the Music. And the gnarlier ones were always my favorite. Of course, Motley Crue stood out as one of the best. Um, I, you know, I love the... Uh, almost the comically ridiculous over the top debaucherous stories. Um, <laughs> and, <laughs> and if you notice, you know, the nice behind the musics didn't get so much uh, replay, but God, they would just hammer Motley Crue or poison or, you know, not just eighties hair bands, but um, those were the them. ones that you would see over and over. Right. Yeah. That was the genesis of the idea. Um, but when I was um, when I started doing music journalism, I would a- I used to ask the question, "What's a perfect day for uh, Mark Mothersbaugh from Devo?" Mm-hmm. That's just an example, and yeah, they would tell me that. And you know, that was very early, very green journalism. But then I started to ask, "What's the worst? What's your worst moment on the road, or what was the worst day for you on the road?" And I kind of started collecting those um, those stories or, or kind of saving them away in my memory bank. And Dean Ween, it's kind of a nice segue. After we went fishing that one time, I remember on the boat, we were uh, started talking about his worst gig, which is kind of convoluted, but it's really funny. Well, I'll just tell it really quick. Ween was uh, scheduled to play a, a college in Vermont. And uh, Busta Rhymes is also on the bill. Uh, the students got to choose. It was sort of like their spring fling concert thing or whatever. So I'll, I remember um, Busta took so long setting up that uh, the timing got all screwed up. So Ween, so when everyone came in for Busta Rhymes, Ween was just starting. And this was not Ween's demo. I mean, this was like hardcore Busta Rhymes fans. Mm-hmm. So they, and Dean was like, they fucking hated us right off the bat. And I was doing 10 minute solos just to piss people off. And he said, the worst of it was when a flying 40 ounce hit me right in the groin. And oh. He's like, it got both of them. I dropped, you know, oh. wind knocked out. And some woman in the front row <laughs> said, motherfucker, you got to go. <laughs> 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 so yeah that was he told me that on the boat i'm like oh that's amazing we got to get this down um so that was the first chapter and i i just built from there originally i was going to call the book um rain or shine i thought it might be too i don't know morbid or depressing to just have the worst gigs um right but as i've learned the worst gigs half the time are just the funniest or yeah. you know the biggest train wrecks you just have to laugh at yourself um and the worst or the best gigs did not work out at all and i really tried it was none of it was salvageable um i remember i interviewed um my friend from frightened rabbit who sadly is no longer around you know not to fault him or any of the people i tried to do this with but they would immediately rattle off their worst gig boom they knew it off the bat um and then the best they would have to kind of hem and haw and well, my brother was there, so it was really special. Or 
I had just gotten engaged and, you know, that's really sweet stuff, but wasn't working for the book. Um, so when I, when I decided to focus on the worst, that's when it just all came very, it started to come very easily. Most artists were, would jump at the invitation to share about their worst gig. Um, and that's, I, you know, I have 61 artists in the book and I wanted, you know, you mentioned there's a good cross section of people. Uh, I wanted to touch on every genre, like En Vogue is in there. Because oh, obviously yeah. En Vogue was huge when I was growing up in the 90s. Yeah, what's their story? Yeah. You know, theirs isn't one of the, my favorites, but it's it's cute um, and kind of funny. But yeah, I, I just, I wanted to go all over, all over the map. And I think I did pretty well with it. So as I mentioned, I, I, I was in six bands, uh, kind of some of them, a lot of them overlapping. But back in the 90s, I was a quote-unquote professional yeah. musician, meaning I made no, I barely wrote <laughs> all the time. But... I got to be in the van for 10, essentially 10 years. And, you know, it's interesting because first of all, that first tour that you do is ecstatic. I mean, I was excited beyond belief because I'm going across the country. Mm-hmm. And it's like, is that point in a band where you don't hate each other yet? Right. <laughs> right. So you're just excited to be together, band of brothers. And it feels like a pirate. I've said this so many times. It feels like you're a pirate with a bunch of pirates around you. And the van is the ship. And you're going from city to city mm-hmm. and you're plundering and you're stealing and you're rocking and you're rolling. And then you move and you're fucking and you move into the next town. Right. And yeah, it's that right. feeling of connectivity and, and, you know, being in a van and uh, I'm 52. So, you know, we had cassettes go fucking figure, you know, back in the nineties mm-hmm. and we're touring with back and when they're he's first starting out, we're touring with Weezer and they're first starting out. And it was this feeling of like, like the whole Silver Lake too, this whole Silver Lake scene in, in Los Angeles was a lot of fun. And it's because of community. And this is where I want to head. Yeah. Right. Because what you, what we've really talked about, this whole ween conversation is a community. You know that you got a bougie tattoo for God's sakes. Right. Right. So you're right. part of a tribe and that tribe understands you. And you just said it earlier too. You see a guy walking down or a woman walking down the street with a ween shirt you're in. I had the same experience with another guy I talked to. He's a squeeze fan. I love Squeeze. I know exactly who he is now, right? True. Not exactly, but 80% of me knows 80% of him, (laughs) right? Yeah. I mean, you know where he's essentially coming from with his likes and dislikes. Um, Yeah, right off the bat. Art is a divining rod to character, in my opinion. Sure. I mean, let's say he likes Squeeze. Okay, what could we – he's probably kind of a new wave guy. You know, you can sort of go down the list of – check boxes like i bet he's into this i bet he's into this and, and also yeah, i bet he's no, articulate cool. and i'll bet you appreciates higher yes, art exactly. yep right? right and that's what i love about conversations like these my friends is because i love myself some low art like you know gore and um dead alive the beast and masterpiece you know <laughs> oh yeah right but I also appreciate <laughs> these conversations so uh moving on and by the way honestly man oh can i tell you my worst experience Oh, I would love to hear that. Okay. There are many <laughs> being on the road. Huh. Um, let's go for some runners up. Uh, one was Hold on, can I ask you real quick? Uh, were, you, were you signed at this point? Oh, right. Like I said, I've been in a lot of bands. Three of them have been quote unquote signed. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ludafisk was a band that I was in that was signed to Bongload early in the producer who was actually on my podcast, Rob Schnapps, produced the record that right. we did. And he did Mellow Gold and, and, and. 
Um, and then the, I was in a couple of other bands that were signed to one was a major, actually one was Warner brothers and I worked there, but you know, we were just mid-level made nothing and had a blast. All of us. Sure. I just wasn't sure how DIY your situation was. Very much so. Yeah. Very much so. I mean, mom, they, <laughs> they didn't have any money. Um, at any rate. So, uh, you captured it. Well, I'm tipping my hat to you, but real quick, my worst, I think it's not really touring so much. It's actually that I was in your town of Chicago, um, and mm-hmm. I was recording a record with Keith Claversley, who produced the first Flaming Lips, or produced like a Flaming Lips record, the big one. And he had a ton of acid. And one night in December, I'd never done acid before, and he gives me this acid. And I'm like a terrified drug kid or drug guy. And I cut it in half. Hold on real quick. I'm sorry. Hey, Jeff, real quick. Did you say Dave Friedman? No. Uh, no. I said Keith Cleversley, who was before Dave Friedman. Okay, cool. Sorry. I just, I misheard. Nope. Go ahead. Nope. Uh, right. So I tore my acid in half. Then I get, up, get really high and listening to Cheap Trick. I think they're talking to me in my headphones. Then I walk outside <laughs> and like 35, no, I think it was like a five degree weather wind chill kind of thing. Middle of the night, I have uh, a t-shirt on and I'm starting to walk up and down the streets of Chicago, completely lost. <laughs> End up in a Mexican bar that I barely remember. They kicked me out, and somehow I'm back home. Wow. That's my – but I got a lot of them, but that's not the – Yeah. Uh, to be a fly in the wall on that, in that Mexican bar must have been amazing. <laughs> you're, you're not kidding. <laughs> I don't remember much. I had a gun held to my head uh, when I was in Texas trying to pony up with a manager. That was fun. No shit. It's the uh, whoa. The man, wait, the manager uh, pulled a gun on you? Well, not no. We didn't have a band manager, but I meant I guess meant the house owner. That's oh, that's what I meant. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I meant the yeah the uh, the house guy. Wow, yeah. that's yeah, insane. Anyway. <laughs> it was one of those things where I said, like, like an old Texas like <laughs> six shooter in a holster kind of deal. Yeah, kind of. I don't know. I had a gunplay on my head. I don't remember what it, was, it looked like. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. I don't know. <laughs> All right. Moving wow. on. Uh, okay. We really got to talk about this one. Uh, as a guy who's seen a billion shows, as have I, right? What would you say is the most connecting live show that you've ever seen? Interpret that how you will. Okay. Um, this is kind of a two pronged thing. So in Barrington, where I grew up, you know, at least my high school years, uh, it was a hippie thing, it was a total hippie scene. The cool crew were hippies. Like, even some of the jocks were hippies. And Fish was just the soundtrack. Uh, for better or worse. Um, right? Yeah. So, I never I never really connected with it. But it was just what my friends did. And, you know, I liked drugs back then. So, yes, going to Fish shows were fun. But I could never understand. I, I still don't. Anyway, I won't talk about that. But I will say... That under the right circumstances, there's a feeling of being locked in at a show where, uh, call it like a mushroom, acid, psychedelic thing, where you feel everyone is on the same page. Uh-huh. It's all good. It's all good vibes. Everyone's moving the same way almost. That's pretty cool. And there's a reason why Fish still, you know, has such a, you know, is legion with their fan base. And so uh, I can't really target a specific fish show, but I had it on numerous occasions where everything felt right with the world. I yep. guess you could put it that way. 
So there's that. I mean, but my personal favorite show, here's just a really cool one. And I could give you a ween show at the Canopy Club in 2001 in Urbana, Illinois. It was the greatest week of music of my life. Uh, Flaming Lips played there, and then Ween played two days later. Wow. And that place holds maybe 300 people. Oh. So, I mean, that was kind of before both those bands really took off in a sense, you know? I mean, Ween was, I don't know, you know, Ween was, it was before streaming and, you know, tape trading was going on, but Ween was not headlining Lollapalooza in 2001, you know? Or it was just a different thing. And then, you know, they really became, well, anyway. Uh, but yeah, th- those shows were two of my favorites. Um, but here's one that I guarantee you wouldn't think of as the greatest show of my life. Uh, you're familiar with Tony Clifton, uh, the Andy Kaufman character? Oh, <laughs> Very much so. He's me. <laughs> I am him, actually. Yes. Right? Yeah, I, I mean, I, oh, right, exactly. It's been a long con, right, to reveal that? Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah I, uh, so anyway, um, Tony Clifton, played by Bob Zamuda, um, uh, Kaufman's old writing partner, who actually used to play Tony a lot of the times back in the day when Kaufman was <laughs> still alive. Um, yeah. uh, we became, I don't know, uh, my friends and I became big fans. We used to watch all the kind of old Andy Kaufman um, specials that we could, you know, like bootleg VHSs. We could get our hands on Man on the Moon came out in what 1999, and Jim Carrey is so great in that. Always had a big love for Tony Clifton and that character. So he uh, he announced a tour. I want to say it, it was in the wake of Hurricane Katrina. It was a benefit tour, and he had a full brass band and showgirls. And uh, here's the here's the kind of funny part of this story. I was writing for this Chicago's, well, it's, uh, they're based out of Chicago. It's called Pop Matters. Um, I was the events editor at that point, and I set up an interview with Zamuda, but he played it as he was, as if he was totally Tony. Like, the email would come from Bob Zamuda, but it would be like, ah, what do you want? You want to fucking talk to Tony Clifton? That's me. Um, he, he never broke character, even, like, when we were pre, pre-gaming this interview. Um, but the show was... What the best thing I've the best live experience I've ever had. I swear it went just over four hours. And Bob, I mean Tony, just I mean he. I remember he did the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. He did um, <laughs> three, three three a.m. by Matchbox Twenty, and it was no. the greatest thing I'd ever seen. It made me love that song. Oh my god! Um, but he's like, oh, she says, baby. It's 3 a.m. I must be lonely. And like he's dancing around and his he's all sweaty. So and then the, he had showgirls passing out shots like every other like every fourth song or something to the entire audience. Sure, if you didn't want to drink it, no problem. But I mean, that was kind of the thing. I mean, so everyone's just caught. You know, the whole audience is really drunk at that point. Right. So I go backstage to interview him. And he's pretty loaded, too. Um, so we did a backstage interview, which was going to be a phoner the next day. And for some reason, I thought he meant the day after because uh, I th- it, was, it was some kind of miscommunication. But I woke up to all these e- or all these voice messages from Tony Clifton being like, Drew, where the fuck are you? You don't stand me up. I stand you up. And, and then I felt so bad. I'm like, oh. 
Well, Tony, I'm sorry I goofed the day. Well, it's no problem. <laughs> uh, that's well, even one of my favorite interviews ever. It was just, I just a hoot. I would not be surprised. I could do three hours on Andrew, uh, Andy Kaufman, Andrew. So, but yeah. we're not going to do that just now because we're going to wrap this fucker up. Yep. But here's what's going to happen. Sure. Uh, we're going to talk. Well, actually, no. I'm going to tell you my favorite, most connecting live story. Then we're going to fake yeah. end it. And you and I are going to chat on the phone after this for a second, right? Okay. Deal. So my favorite, most connecting movie, I was going to say Bruce Springsteen, which I can talk about later someday, but it's actually The Flaming Lips. I forgot about this until now. So mm. I'm a huge fan of that band, as obviously you are. Soft and done. Best record ever. Well, one of the best. Oh, it's amazing. Masterpiece. Yep. But the one in between uh, – um, Transmissions of a Satellite Heart. God, this conversation's people were tuned to the fuck out now. But Transmissions of a Satellite <laughs> goes into Kyle's Taste Metallic, as I know. So it was the Kyle's Taste Metallic, Metallic too. Right? It's Kyle's Taste Metallic. So in Los Angeles, they did this thing where they were going to do um, – where are you, by the way? You're in Chicago, right? I'm in Michigan. Michigan. Okay. At any rate, there's this place in uh, L.A., and they had this great little tiny venue, maybe 500 people, uh, one story, just basically like a little building. And they're kind of a not that big of a stage, maybe five feet high tops, and bands would come in and play. So the Lips promote Cloud Taste Metallic. We're doing five nights at this place, right? Hollywood Moguls. And I got in. So you walk wow. in. Everything's dark. Um, but then they start off that first song on Cloud Taste Metallic where, you know, it's like, yeah, there's the slow guitar thing. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And then it goes, ba 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 boom, boom, boom. And that's when they do that. Somebody flicks a light on, and the entire room, head to toe, is all in Christmas lights. Even the ceiling is Christmas lights, right? Oh, cool. And it was yeah. a massive room, and everybody, all the hipsters like me were like, holy crap, that's amazing. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> but they just that's cool. Uh, no, that's – yeah, to see them at – uh, yeah, at that early in those early stages is just amazing. Uh, oh. I thought you were going to say you were part of the parking lot experiment with Syrica. <laughs> I was, but I was not at the South by Southwest one. I was at the original one at Warner Brothers Records. Hello. Oh, my God. That's so cool. And I'm like, well, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, this is the, officially the dorkiest conversation in modern history. So what we're going to do is we're going to do a little quick uh, acting involved. This is kind of a hang uh, end the shtick. I'm going to pretend to say goodbye. You're going to pretend to say goodbye, and we're going to hang up and keep rocking for rocking. God, we're going to keep talking for a second. Deal? Sure. Here we go. Uh, Drew. You're you're such an amazing dude. Like, I feel like we're in, I feel like we're in Step Brothers the movie. We're like, are we just best friends now? Yep. Um, really yep. great guy. <laughs> yep. Great conversation, my friend. Uh, thank you for reminding me about Ween. Thank you for letting me understand and, and and know about Beast Mode. And thank you for being an awesome human being. Your turn, Drew. Hey Jeff, uh, thanks so much for having me. Um, like you said, and it's no bullshit. I felt a really easy rapport with you right off the bat. Um, and I love your show. You've had some amazing guests. So honestly, I'm just uh, honored to be a part of it. Well, you're a part of the family now, the Inspired Minds family. Oh, that's sweet. All right. <laughs> uh, I'm going to fake hang up and then uh, we'll keep chatting. Here we go. You ready? One, two, click. <laughs> <laughs>